the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 6, Pellucidar, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show, we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming books. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. My pick for this episode is Hollow Earth Expedition by Jeff Combos. You can find it at Noble Knight for the low, low price of $17.95 at noblenight.com. And with me today is my very special guest, Jeff Wickstrom. Say hello, Jeff. Yo! Happy to be here. And we are discussing the second book in the Pellucidar series, which is titled, conveniently enough, Pellucidar. Which is great. It's easy to remember. By Edgar Rice Burroughs. Pellucidar, I don't think, is ever going to be remembered as fondly as Tarzan or Barsoom. But no. um, it definitely has had an effect on popular culture. So this this is the this is the sequel to At the Earth's Core, uh, which was published in April 1914. Pellucidar was published in the same magazine, All Story Weekly, as a four-part serial in May 1915. So a little over a year later, uh, and we begin with what. I think is is Burroughs' most brilliant story device, uh, the 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 frame story, where we 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 confirm that the uh, narrator of the previous story was in fact Burroughs himself, and we we begin with him receiving a letter uh, from from someone uh, critiquing his his writing, but uh, also explaining that he has uh, coincidentally discovered. The, the telegraph machine from the end of last story. The thing that I like about this is that um, as is keeping with like the, the style of, uh, of how this was presented, um, typically when you had the, the fictionalized uh, masquerading as truth thing mm-hmm. yeah. uh, from a uh, hundred years ago, is that it's uh, the, uh, the name of the club that the guy's mailing from is identified as the blank and blank club in Algiers, and the date is June 1st blank. Uh, but the guy's name is Cogden Nestor, and uh, yeah, Burroughs does not see fit to uh, to censor that, which is what I would think is what you would I, want to I, censor I, if you were going to be respecting the guy's privacy uh, and not revealing the year in which he was writing, uh, because that would be a betrayal of trust. Uh, you would think that you would also want to avoid uh, repeating the guy's name, because that's a pretty memorable name. I don't think that you're going to hear that and think, oh, that's probably a, distant, a different Cogden Nestor than the one that I know. I I immediately assumed that it was probably like one of Burroughs' friends or something from real life, or he he had taken one of his friends and just like slightly changed his his name because it 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 sounds like Burroughs took someone that that he knew and sort of made a made a, a, a caricature. That sounds pretty plausible. I hadn't thought of that. But I mean, it 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 it, it strikes me that. In, in an in an age uh, before we had you know uh, Comic Con and uh, you know YouTube and and Twitter and and all of this stuff, uh, Burroughs is is attempting just to sort of like reach out and and connect with his with his readership because he you know one of the one of the thing, the things he, he says is I love getting letters so please write to me 
right? And I mean, even even though this this is is a is a fictional person, right? He's he's putting forth the the idea that that all of this is real, and and you can you can enter Burroughs' world just just by by writing to him because he is he is he is the conduit. Like he's he's making himself a a a brand name almost. You know, I am I am Edgar Rice Burroughs. I am the con I I am the conduit to the fantastic worlds that you've been that you've been reading about it it doesn't happen without me it's a it's a promotion of himself yeah so i think i think that's that's fascinating um and we we get right back into the action almost right away uh turns out that that the arabs that were coming to murder david innes uh weren't bad arabs they were good arabs they were the friendly kind they were the friendly kind um it, it it seems that so far Burroughs doesn't really seem to have a problem with any race except for the American Indians. American Indians are kind of dim-witted, according to him. Yes. Uh, yeah. In in, it, in, it, in uh, it comes John up Carter more than of, once. I'm sorry. It comes up more than once. Yeah. In in John Carter of Mars, he 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 makes the assertion that uh, in, uh, American Indians will torture white people. Uh, for no reason other than the sheer pleasure of it, and I believe there's a passage somewhere in this story where uh, he says uh, Indians just lie to white people all the time uh, for no good reason. It's not yeah, like he's, they're yeah. He's describing the uh, this group of of people that he meets that are kind of quasi cavemen. He compares yeah. them to sheep and also to gorillas. Yeah, and then he says, and really, the, what they what they're really like though is American Indians. Right. Yeah. So Edgar Rice Burroughs has no problem with Arabs, no problem with with aliens or beast men, but for some reason he really just doesn't seem to like American Indians. Um. Yeah. So so there's that. Yeah, he was he was from I think uh, was he from Texas or Oklahoma? One of the two. Uh, he, Certainly, he was a product of his time. He was he I I believe uh, he was from all over. Um, I should really have the Wikipedia entry open in front of me, and then then I would know. But he he basically traveled around the country doing doing odd jobs before he started writing. So and and, and he had actually met actual American Indians. Um, so who knows? Um, but that's not important. Uh, Burroughs' prejudices and and weird opinions are are not important. What's important is this exciting story. So we we get right back into the action and uh Burroughs uh, sorry, uh David Ennis sets out again in his in his uh, drilling machine loaded up with with books and supplies and most importantly guns. Lots and lots of guns. Enormous enormous piles of ammunition. Yes. And and reemerges uh, in Pellucidar, uh, thankfully narrowly missing uh, the bottom of, of the ocean. He 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 emerges onto land. Uh, yeah, it's it's coastal though, uh, right. where he comes at. And this this actually is is something that caused me to to marvel at a little bit because mm. he uh, to recap the right. mole, the mole machine was constructed in New Jersey. Um, he and Abner Perry rode it down into Pellucidar. Right. Then they swung it around, and uh, David rode it back up to the surface of the Earth, and he emerged in the Sahara. I I don't think they they exited Pellucidar at the same place they entered. I think the mole machine was hauled over land towards whatever village that they were in at the time. I think I think I think it was sorry. Okay. Is is the, if that's the case, then that completely invalidates what I was about to. Uh, say so I, I could also never mind. Be just making that up. Yeah. Uh, so I, I honestly, I honestly do not remember. Yeah. I was, my my point was just that if you imagine New Jersey, the Sahara Desert, and the site, uh, the point on Pellucidar where the mole machine emerges in the first book, right. if you imagine those three points as the vertices of a triangle, yeah, um, and you know that the it's five hundred miles from the Sahara to Pellucidar and 500 miles huh. from Pellucidar to New Jersey because it's, it's 500 miles uh, deep. You right. you actually can't close a uh, close a triangle um, between New Jersey and uh, and the Sahara, right? That that that's more than a thousand miles. <laughs> well, he didn't he didn't go straight down, right? 
Yeah, and it's true that when he uh, turned around in the Sahara and went back to Pellucidar, he makes a note that um, that the that the machine was was knocked slightly at an angle, right, and that it took a few minutes less time uh, than the the seventy two hours apparently almost on the dot that uh, right. that it so, took him the first time. So so that time, it he he went almost. Uh, uh, vertically straight, straight through the Earth's core, and that actually checks out because at least I, I went and I looked up maps that people have drawn of Pellucidar, um, and based on maps that Burroughs drew and so forth. And apparently, the um, the two places where the mole machine uh, hit the surface of Pellucidar okay. uh, were only about fifty miles apart. Uh, there was a, a mountain range in between them, but they're, they're not actually that far apart as the crow's fly. And that actually makes sense if you imagine a triangle that's 500 miles, an isosceles triangle 500 miles long on, uh, on its height, and then just a very, just a very narrow couple of, uh, couple of degrees. Uh, you can imagine the base of that being about 50 miles. So, so this book is a little bit more scientifically accurate than, than the previous one, is, is what you're saying. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go that far, but because oh, okay. there's still the whole thing with time. Yeah. I just, I just, what I find interesting about it is the the New Jersey to the Sahara thing. Because um, yeah. what that what that suggests to me is again the idea that the interior of Pellucidar doesn't really map one to one with the interior of the Earth. That it's not. It's described as a hollow Earth. You get to it by drilling down into the ground. But it's really a, it's more sort of an alternate dimension. Time flows differently there. Now, do, uh, do you think yada, that yada. this is, is what Burroughs intended? Or are, are you just like, are, are you just making excuses for him? I don't, I don't know if it's what he intended or not. But when you look at other hollow earths in, in popular culture, and I think Pellucidar has been really influential in describing them. If you look at um, Land of the Lost, okay. uh, the TV show, that was, right. was kind of unstuck in time. Uh, if you look at Scartaris from the uh, the Lost World of the Warlord, that comic book series, right. the uh, the flow of time in Scartaris and the flow of time out uh, on the surface of the Earth were were very different from one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that that has carried forward in people's impressions of of the Hollow Earth. And I think that I, I blame Pellucidar for that. And I, I I still maintain that. I don't. I don't think Burroughs intended for there to be this sort of magical time, you know, alternate. T- uh, I, I, I think Burroughs in, intended that that in, in Pellucidar, time is pa- is is passing the the same way as it is outside. It's just that the humans don't don't notice it. At one point, David takes a nap that he thinks lasts a month. Right. I, that, well, I'm, that not, I'm not. I'm not saying that stuff. that it's. It's that, that the way Burroughs uh, presents it is incredibly realistic. I don't. I don't think it is. But I think in 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 Burroughs's mind, it's 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 all it's all scientific. It's all taking place in the in the same uh, universe, the same time flow. Uh, Burroughs is is just trying to demonstrate that if you if you uh, if 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 you don't have a moving sun in the in the sky, people will will lose all track of time, which which I don't agree with him, but I, I think that's that's what he's trying to uh, present. But yeah, I, I definitely think that trying to explain it as some sort of magic alternate uh, uh, dimension thing would make a whole lot more 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 sense. I just don't think that's where what Burroughs in, in intended. I just I feel like I want to give him him more credit than that because Surely Edgar Rice Burroughs is aware that indoors exists, and indoors people are not seeing the passage of the sun across the sky, and yet people are aware of the experience of the of the passage of time. Indoors, in caves, mm-hmm. you know, mining underground, submarines, you know, time time passes at a fixed rate, and people are aware of that without the cue of the sun. Well, uh, unfortunately, he's really not around for us to ask him. So, um, who knows? Maybe it's a shame because I think it's it's one of the most interesting things about Lucidar. Um, this that this this weirdness with regards to time, mm-hmm. right? I mean, towards the uh, towards the end of the book, 
um, we discover spoiler warning that Perry has successfully taken all of the uh, all of the materials that uh, David brought down in the mole machine, and he's constructed basically an entire industrial infrastructure. Uh, yeah, with the factories that build machines that are used to build other factories and powder magazines and uh, rifled uh, rifled uh, Which... barrel guns, mm-hmm. and that I would think that that would be something that would take longer than whatever amount of time David spends wandering the surface of Pellucidar in the meantime. And, and, and this has all supposedly taken place in the year between when the first story was, was published and when this story is published. Right, because David was on the, on the surface of the Earth at the end of the first story. Right. And here he is a year later telling us about all the stuff that he's done since then. Right. So, yes, I, 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 I agree with you that, that yeah, some, some kind of magic alternate dimension explanation makes a whole lot more sense than than whatever I said. Um, I mean, it, 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 could, it could certainly be that, that Burroughs was just um, not worried too much about how long that would realistically take because he had a lot of other things on his mind. Um, yeah, he, he he wrote like six other stories this year, in, in, including his his fourth uh, Barsoom story and like his fifth Tarzan novel. So he he was writing a lot. I really admire his um, his commitment to producing at a, at such a rate. Well, it was it and was making it's him quality too. Yeah, this is, was, whatever else you can say about Lucidar, this book that we're we're talking about, it's very readable. I it, I had it. It's not I, a it's not a slog. Uh, okay, I I had the uh, audiobook read to me uh, both times that I I went through it. I I don't know. It 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 felt a little bit wearying to me. Sort sort of like the third um, uh, uh, Mars book. Uh, this one this one seemed to have uh, very little story and and a whole lot of lot of filler. Uh, but you know what? We're we're losing track of ourselves. Uh, I wanna I, I sort of want to go through this in in order. Um, I, I I do love how the how the story uh, begins with David Innes reemerging back into uh, Pellucidar. He's he he's got his uh, Mayhar prisoner uh, uh, with him, mm-hmm. and and she quickly uh, escapes and goes back to her to her own own people, uh, and he just loads himself down with with guns. And and a compass and a pocket watch, and just sets off across the 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 wilderness, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like it's it's just this this satisfying feeling of. You well, know, now he's now he knows what he's getting into. He's prepared. He's equipped. He's right, ready to go. Right. It's like the last time I was here, I had I had my 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 two hands. And and that was it. And now I've got stuff. So I mean, the the just that opening gave me the feeling that I get at the beginning of some, you know, huge open world video game. Like I can I can imagine the the video game version of this where where you are David Innes and this is is where you start. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Right. Like like here's the world. Go go conquer it. Isn't Which that, is yeah. yeah, and that's and that's what he does. He wanders around, uh, shooting things for an indeterminate period of time. And and yeah, the first thing he loses is his watch. So we're we're back to the no time thing. Yeah, every every single other thing that he brought along survived the trip intact. Yet his watch was broken. I mean, I I would call that ev- you know ev- some kind of evidence in support of some kind of weird magic thing. But uh, I I do think that's me reading into it. Uh, yeah. It's just—it's just a coincidence. I—I I, I think we really have no way of 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 knowing. Um, so, m- most of the of the middle of this story is is a lot of David wandering from from place to place, and and that's kind of where I felt like it was a was a slog because he's he's got his his one mission, and that that is to reunite with with all of his friends. And conquer the 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 Mayhars, 
and it it, it reminds me of um, uh, Warlord of Mars, which we reviewed. Well, not you and I, but with with my guest Jay, we we reviewed that a, a couple months ago. And in that book, John Carter has one mission, and that's to rescue his his wife. And he spends the entire book just sort of chasing her across the planet from from one sub adventure to another. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Princess of Mars, the 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 first book, I like I I vividly re- remember almost every episode of that book because it all just you know each episode flowed naturally one to 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 the other there there weren't so so many uh characters that just showed up and went 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 away you know, you know everything seemed to 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 contribute to to the to the whole mm-hmm. um but in in this one i i really can't remember how many times david gets captured and and escapes or how many different you know four-legged beasts he fights how many different tribes of cavemen he subdues it, it all just seems to seem to seems to blend blend together for there, yeah there's a real lack of a sense of rising action it's just a whole bunch of things it's stuff that happens yeah and then then there's a there's a there's a big ending um, yes but the, that it feels like that ending could have come at pretty much any point mm-hmm. um, he he reunites with uh, Perry uh, he he learns that his empire has sort of fallen apart in in his in his absence. It, yeah. it never really got off the ground to begin with. It, yeah, as soon as he was gone, everything just just collapsed. Uh, but 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 Perry looks apparently ten years younger than he actually is. Whereas when he entered Pellucidar, he looked ten years older than he actually was. And they were in Pellucidar for about ten years. So. <laughs> Yeah, but um, so you know, I guess when they entered, he was about a forty-year-old man that looked fifty, and now he's a fifty-year-old man that looks forty. That's assuming that he's aging at a rate of one year per year, right? Which, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we can assume that. I don't think we can assume anything, because you know what happens when we assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, once the once Perry and David are reunited, the first thing that they do is that David takes Perry back to the mole machine. Right. Um, and even though Perry, David has been like wandering around for an indeterminate amount of time, hunting animals and uh, trying to figure out where he is, he's able to get back to the mole machine with Perry pretty much instantly. Well, he's he's got his compass. That's true. That's true. Magnetic compasses work in Pellucidar. Uh, like I, I guess he was he was going very very slowly, like making making a map as he went. And as soon as he found Perry, he just he just made a beeline, in a in a in a in a straight line where wherever he wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah but so uh, so apparently compasses do work. I would assume that realistically, if this were really happening, that that the compass would still point towards mag- magnetic north on the surface. I would, I imagine so. Um, if we're, if we're going to talk realism, as I recall from like my undergraduate physics classes, if the, if the earth were actually a hollow shell, then there would be no gravity on the inside. Mm. Yes. Which is neither here nor there. I just wanted to bring that up. Because I, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, well, you have the, the, the pull of the part of the Earth that you're directly on top of. You see, say you're in, inside a hollow Earth. You're standing on the inside of right. a hollow Earth. You have the pull of the gravity that you're directly on top of. And then you have the pull of the gravity of, uh, of all of the Earth that's like over your head. Right. And uh, it's a lot further away, but there's also a lot more of it. And those exactly cancel each other out such that you are effectively weightless. I, I guess, but in, in in this story, there's almost no mass in the center of the Earth except for that that sun. We we have no idea. Yeah, who knows what that's even made of? Right. So, but yeah, there, there there does seem to be some sort of artificial gravity effect going on. Yeah, and, then, well, and that it, it gets all the more confusing when you talk, start talking about Pellucidar's moon, right? Uh, Which is floating is... a mile above the the surface so in, in like a geosynchronous orbit kind of thing it's just hanging there right so in the sky. we said the crust was what 500 miles thick yeah so it's it's about 501 miles inside the earth 
Yeah. And, 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 and apparently has like mountains and forests and, and lakes on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it spins along its own axis. Uh, so, so the so the moon has day and night because its its axis is perpendicular to the ground of Pellucidar. Yeah, and, and he and and that eventually becomes a plot point, uh, more or less, I guess. Right. It's fair to say because they, they, they the basically idea use it, they, uh, use as, it as, a, a clock. as a clock, right? <sighs> but but we're, we're we're totally getting well ahead of ourselves because uh, you, you were saying you want to go through this in in order. Uh, more or less, I, I, I can, like I said, I can, I can barely remember the order in which things happen. But um, he, uh, at at one point, he's captured by the Mayhars and uh, finds uh, Diane the Beautiful in the same arena where he is. Um, and the the Mayhars want him to bring them the 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 formula. Yeah, the great secret. Yeah, the, the the great secret, which which we learn is in the form of a of a document. Yeah, so, which it, it really the whole uh, if if they're unwilling to make backup copies, then maybe as a species they deserve to to die out. Yeah, because yeah, that's a that's a horrible data retention uh, system for I, mission mission critical data. Just just one hard copy that somebody can just walk off with. That's uh, that's terrible. Yeah, uh, he's he's the 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 Mayhars really don't seem as scientifically advanced as Burroughs uh, tells you that that they are. Yeah, David makes a lot of assertions about the Mayhars being advanced, but there doesn't really seem to be a lot of evidence in support of that. They they they, they don't really have machines. Um, they you know they, they they don't really have elect electricity. They 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 don't have the technology that that even like you know renaissance age humans yeah and in barsoom you would know more about this than me but in barsoom there are several like technologically advanced cultures that have cool gadgets mars is supposed to be like a like a post-apocalyptic setting so they've they've already had you know uh laser rays and spaceships and things and then the society fell apart and you've you've got these uh, people who who know how to use the stuff, I guess, but not really produce it. But again, Burroughs doesn't really, you know, Burroughs is really inconsistent there too, because in the first book he introduces a lot of fantastic technology, which he later just doesn't talk about, because he's he's focusing more on on on, on the warlike, primitive nature of of everything. I remember it as being kind of He-Man-like. There's air sleds and ray guns uh, all over the place. Yeah, He-Man. He-Man would would be the best sort of uh, uh, analogy for for Barsoom. It's 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 barbarians with laser tanks. Yeah, and no one really knows like where where it comes from or how it got there. It's it's just sort of there. Yeah. So if that's like the 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 baseline for crazy advanced cool technology, the Mahars have none of that. They right. have they have nothing. I mean, they don't. They don't even have like the wheel. That's yeah. There's there's no indication that they have that they work metal. There's no indication uh, that they do that they do anything. They get the the Sagoths to mm-hmm. to do stuff for them, mm-hmm. and that apparently is what cements them as the dominant species. But but they were they were also able to genetically engineer themselves to reproduce without without males. Which turns out to, to not have been the brilliant move that they apparently thought that it was going to be. Which I, 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 can, I can only assume is some sort of Burroughs commentary on, on what he thinks of women, which I, I don't think is much. Oh, well, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I, this is an area where I would act on, on that particular point, I would give Burroughs the benefit of the doubt, only because David persistently refers to the Mehars as it, as neuter. He doesn't see them as feminine, and uh, I would argue that that is something that uh, if Burroughs meant to say, here's a bunch of idiot women and their horrible woman civilization, uh, David would be seeing the, the Mahars as female rather than as just just gender indistinct uh, monsters. Possibly. Um, 
again, I, I really can't say. I'd, I'd have to study Burroughs more and, and like his, his private letters and things and his, and his other stories to, to, to really know what he, what he thought. Um, so anyways, yeah, so, so David, so this, this is, is once again a, a rescue the princess in, in, in peril situation. Oh, and 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 speaking of 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 uh, of our uh, royalty, it's I I think it's 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 related that the Mayhar that that had gone up in the capsule with him turns was, out to have been a princess. Yeah, right. She was descended from the very last, you know, male king of the of the of the Mayhars, which I, I he just has to has to throw in there because you you can't be important if you're not some form of royalty, I guess. Apparently, yeah. So right, so David goes on all sorts of adventures. There's there's lots of of wild beasts. Uh, he he meets yet another race of of beast men, which I don't think he even gives them them a name. But their their leader is is called Gur Gur Gur. Yeah, yeah. These and they they assume that he's uh, he's affiliated with Huja the Sly One because they're both you know humans, right? And uh, and taken prisoner. And and these these beast men have have heads which are kind of like sheep but also kind of like gorillas. Yeah, and they're and they're and they're basically David just kind of said they're they're basically like the American Indians. Yeah, yeah, that's probably not very politically correct. Not 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 at all. No. Sorry, he's American a, Indians. A, he's, if, he's if, a if I have any time. any American Indian listeners, I'm I'm really sorry that Burroughs is really horribly racist. Yeah, and the, the guy's a product of his time, and it's, you have to you have to look at it in that in that light. Right? Yeah, you don't want to deny that it exists, but it's not something right. you, need to, you need to really dwell on. I don't know why I keep bringing it up, except that I'm. Why do you keep yeah, bringing it up, Jeffrey? I guess I'm just contrary like that. I'm 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 a bad person. Right. So um, we're, we're much also like, much like David is a bad prisoner. For the sheep gorilla people, because they put him to work uh, farming melons, and yeah, he once just a, says, once again, "Screw the, that! I'm going to be the world's worst melon farmer." Once, once again, like the 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 no time thing comes into play because because they're like, "We will kill you when the melons are harvested," and since, since they have no way to track time, they don't they don't know that he's delaying. Yeah, they don't. They they never come by and are like, man, it's been a few weeks. You would think some of those these melons would have sprouted by now if you were watering them properly. That that never happens. Yeah. So um, he 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 also uh, gets a pet. Um, he 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 runs across a they they call it a hyena don, like 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 a half dog half hy- hyena, yeah. and just like John Carter of of Mars, um, if you're nice to wild animals and just like pet them and feed them, uh, they will they will be faithful and and follow you like a like a dog. Um, so that's that's what what happens here. Burroughs, Burroughs must really like like dogs because he just seems to work them in to all of his stories. It's like I was saying uh, saying before, dogs are integral to all fiction. Men, women, dogs, and conflict. Right. So we will we will call that uh, Wickstrom's first law of of fiction. Yes, the, it's a four um, four member uh, the, the not a tripod, but there are four. But quadruped. There you go. It's a quadruped. All fiction is a quadruped. And and so are dogs. Mm-hmm. Unless unless See, it all that's, it all ties together. Right. Excellent. We are making astounding discoveries in in our discussions with each other. <sighs> Absolutely. So um, let's see. He he runs afoul of the sheep gorilla people. He um, the way he he gets away from the sheep gorilla people is, I think, one of the one of the things that just irritates me um, and makes me bring up the whole racism angle right. because Huja's people attack the sheep gorilla people and he goes and he, he, he's, he hasn't been asked to help because he's a prisoner right. but he goes and he sees that um, Huja's people are going to overpower the sheep gorilla people and then he, he has the idea of, of having the sheep gorilla people throw rocks at Huja's people 
because you know, thank God that there was a an, an American, a white guy, there to tell the sheep gorilla people what to do. Because it would it, it would not have occurred to them to throw rocks at their enemy. They would have just they would have just laid down. And yeah, died. that 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 does seem to occur throughout the novel. Like like not not only does David Innes have all this science and technology on his side, he's just he he just has better ideas than everyone. Yeah, and it's sometimes very basic things, you know, like like the existence of boats. Right. Well well everyone seems to seems to have boats. But but he like no one seems seems to have have a sail yeah. until he he makes one. And or or just the idea of sparing your prisoners so that you can make alliances with them instead of killing everyone. Yeah, domesticated animals. There's almost none of them in right. uh, Pellucidar, and then he makes friends with the dog. And somebody, I forget who, one of these groups of people that he comes that he stumbles across. They they see him with the dog, and they assume he's some kind of witch uh, because he's able to to interact with the dog without the dog trying to kill him. Right. I yeah, he's he's basically saying. right. Yeah. I I and I, I I'm pretty sure that that primitive man would would have had some of these things. You know, if, if if they've got spears and and bows and arrows, they 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 should also have agriculture and domesticated animals. But somebody ought to. I'm not saying that every every group is going to have made all of these discoveries. Well, they, but somebody they, somebody's going to have figured it out, given the the number of people and the amount of time and right. The, the, just, the, it, the that people era. that that live in the land of awful shadow have domesticated the um, the, uh, the the things that look Liddy, like Liddy. Yeah, Liddy. Which I sound to me like like those long necked uh, dinosaur things. Yeah, yeah. You can find pictures online, artist interpretations that are kind of that are basically like brontosauruses. Yeah, brontosaurus. Um. So yeah, so so right. So so some some domesticated animals do exist somewhere on Pellucidar, and uh, you know even even by the end of of the story, David hasn't explored all of Pellucidar. He's 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 explored a small small fragment of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And 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 these are the humans that that have been living in the shadow of of the Mayhars. So maybe maybe the the Mayhars have been systematically. Trying to uh, trying to keep keep the humans from inventing stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the the only explanation that 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 I can think of. Yeah, I mean, if the Mayhars are going to come in and just start killing people intermittently every generation or two, then that's that is really going to mess up people's uh, people's ability to build anything. Right. And it's, I don't think it's that implausible to interpret that as being what has been going on. And 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 even even selectively going, oh look, that person invented agriculture. Let's kill him and burn down his farm, so that no one else will get get the the idea. Yeah. Yeah. But all right. So we we've established that that the middle of this book is is basically a a, a series of really more or less random adventures. With, with beasts and, and beast men uh, until David uh, finally rescues Diane from uh, this, this, this mesa where, where Huja has just stashed her un- until he's ready to have his, his way uh, with Yeah, her. he rescues her about three times uh, over the course of the book, and it's really only the third time that it really sticks. Right. I, I will say, say this about um, Burroughs' Uh, villains, they're 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 off they're they're awfully uh, gentlemanly, uh, in 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 the way they approach uh, rape. Um, they, they you know they 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 take their time. Uh, they they often want to marry uh, the 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 woman in question before they they rape her. Uh, they 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 don't just you know do it as soon as they as they have the chance. Um, yeah, I guess Hooge's plan was to conquer all of humanity that uh, that he was aware of, and then come back to Diane and be like, "Look, I'm king of everything. Surely now you're willing to uh, to give it up for me, and have some kind of some version of consensual sex." Uh, I, it's, it's what I, I think it, his his scheme was to the extent that he had a had a coherent plan. Yeah, I mean this this happened again all throughout uh, the the Mars books, various various 
tyrants would uh, kidnap uh, Dejah Thoris and force her to marry them uh, before they before they did anything. Um, so John Carter could could wait uh, until until after the marriage to to uh, rescue her. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't have to have to worry that 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 she would come to harm uh, uh, beforehand. Suffer the the fate worse than death. Right. As yes. It was, as it was known at the time. Right. Uh, it's and it's it's very very telling that 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 often uh, Diane and uh, you know like like Dejah Thoris uh, uh, before her often often their 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 only defense is to threaten to kill themselves. Um. Rather, rather than than uh, suffer the the uh, amorous uh, in intentions of their captor. Yeah. Well, Diane Diane has a has a has a plan for the next time she sees Hooja. She has a a snake tooth loaded with venom, and she's oh, yes. going to she's going to murder him with it. That, uh, yes. Because Di, Diane, I, I will. I feel like uh, Burroughs deserves some credit. Uh, is it, it, as much of a strong female character as one could reasonably expect for 19, uh, 1915? I suppose. <sighs> you know, she's at least not completely passive at all times. That is, that uh, is, that is true. I couldn't really imagine, like, I don't know who to compare her to, like Princess Leia, maybe? Um, I can't really see Princess Leia under these circumstances as doing a much better job. Uh, Princess Leia would would grab a gun or a sword and start kicking some some butt. I I always got the sense that Diane would have done that if there had ever been a sword or gun available for her to grab. She she grabs a spear a couple of times I think, um, but never really gets to use it because you know David's there. Mm-hmm. And that's true. That's true. Maybe I should retract. What Everyone else is useless when Leia. David's around, yes. right? And if when David is in the room, everybody else's IQ just drops by fifty points. <laughs> and That's... and right, and she she does manage to get captured even even when she does have a spear in in her hand. So I don't know. Yeah. It's 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 again something I really don't like to dwell on because it's yeah. Diane Diane could have been worse. Let's just leave it, it at that. It can always be be worse. That is that is true. Um. So finally, finally, uh, David rescues uh, Diane and is escaping with her and some random caveman. I have no idea why the random caveman, um, Juag, Juag. There, there's why, like why he's or, there. there. There's like three or four random caveman com- companions that that David has at one time or another in this book and the previous book. That's that's why. I, it, it's so easy for me to, to lose track of, of the plot as opposed to a princess of Mars where there were like maybe one or two people that that David met you know like one one or sorry John Carter there there was like one person from each culture that that he came across that that he met it it, it wasn't this this constantly uh, re- revolving cast of just boring throwaway characters. You have Cork, uh, Kulk, son of Gork, or something like that. Gur, 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 and uh, and this guy is Joag. Yeah, yeah. So, so, anyways, so they're escaping across the the ocean, and and this is is the beginning of their big aquatic ad, adventure. Um, and uh, I, I think they first they run across uh, Huja's fleet, right? Yeah, Huja has built an entire fleet. Uh, and uh, they run away from him because they've got a sail. Right, and they're able to they're able to get away from him. He chases, and, and, and they, they they're unable to find a place to land and flee inland. Right, uh, I, I think there there was a storm earlier, and they've they've lost sight sight of land, and uh, the Pelucidarians' amazing homing ability conveniently doesn't work on on the ocean. Yeah, it's that's that's one of those contrivances. There's also a bit where um, David is traveling in the company of some Pelucidarians who don't normally sleep, and then just for fun they all decide to take a nap together, and that's when the Sagoth come by, massacre everybody except David, and take David prisoner. Which is you know just really contrived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I feel bad because I 
honestly think that Edgar Rice Burroughs did a remarkable job given the amount of stuff that he was doing and all of the and all of the things and uh, the, the he, plot was not his strong suit definitely not in this book no no plot plot i don't i don't think uh is has ever been his his strong suit i i would describe burroughs books as i idea porn you 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 read it for what's the next big fantastic idea going to be mm-hmm I mean, kind of like George Lucas after him, he was an, an idea man, not so much an execution man. Yeah, well, that I mean, I think that ties back into what I was saying before about the Hollow Earth and how influential um, Pellucidar has been in people's views of the Hollow Earth and uh, the different different versions of it that you see. So the story ends, or at least the 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 final act begins with uh, David uh, meeting up with Abner Perry and 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 the the Pellucidar Imperial fleet yeah Perry was last seen back in the first third or so of the book um, back in back in sorry I think yeah back in sorry he successfully uh, made made his way back to sorry with Perry and then left Perry there to to do empire building while he went off to rescue Diane. Right. And, and Perry's built like a whole fleet of, 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 of ships and, and Perry, cannons. And Perry has, Perry has bootstrapped an entire industrial revolution. Um, he's, he's got, got everything that, uh, that you could, you could want. He's, he's, he's basically built a, built a civilization like a, like a Korean playing uh, Starcraft. So once once David joins up with his fleet, he is basically unstoppable for the remaining chapters of the book. Yeah, which is only really like a like a uh, about a chapter, and that's actually something that kind of disappoints me because after all of this build up to the um, the industrialized new nation state taking over Pellucidar, he really uh, just covers it very in very very quickly. Um, there's a war against the Mahars. They build a super bomb and destroy the Mahar city that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 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 really just just sort of terrifying how he just steamrolls over over everybody. It's yeah. It, it, I mean, the image that I get um, is you know you're playing like uh, Sid Meier's Civilization, any version of it, and you do the cheat that gets you all of the tech at the beginning of the game. Right. And then you start building uh, mechanized infantry and sending them out against the other tribes, uh, spearmen and uh, phalanxes and archers and so on, and just, just smashing them. Uh, which, is a, which is a fun way to spend about 10 minutes. This story sort of r- r- reminds me of like the, the opposite of the, the Valley of the Blind, right? The, 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 the short story where, uh, 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 you know, in, in, the, in the Valley of the Blind, the, the one-eyed eyed man is king. And it's, it's mm-hmm. a short o, o. Henry story where, you know, a, a guy with, with two eyes thinks that he can, he can rule a, a, a village where everyone is, is, is blind and, and, you know, they, they turn the tables and, and they show, show him, right? If, mm-hmm. in, if for, for most authors... This this would all blow up in in David's face, right? He would he would try and and bring fire to to the natives, and and the fire would would uh, burn him. But in instead, the, the Connecticut Yankee and uh, King Arthur's Court kind of right, ends that way, right? Right. The 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 peasants just refuse to accept uh, industry, and they but, prefer the church in Berlin and revolt. But instead. Everything goes in David's favor. He wins. He wins everything. Uh, he he he. You know, all the all the natives fall in line. He's like, you want to build uh, ships and and learn agriculture and learn to read, and they're like, sure. Yeah. The the last chapter is entitled "Conquest and Peace," and it could just be entitled "David Wins at Everything." <laughs> so I mean, like, I I I I kind of see like maybe. Uh, a sequel from like one of these natives uh, point points of view where like this, this evil alien tyrant is just like taking over the the whole world and making everyone work when before they were just, you know, peacefully hunting animals and, and, you know, living in caves. Now I, I have to go work in a factory and my whole 
way of life has changed. It would amaze me if that novel has not been written, um, because that's a that's a that's a terrific uh, vehicle for you know your your late twentieth century commentary on early twentieth century imperialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, taken at at face value, it's it's very optimistic, right? It, mm-hmm. it is it is the triumph of, of reason over over you know savagery. It's it's the kind of thing we wish would happen. Yeah, so you're 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 completely idealized white man's burden um, system. Uh, Perry teaches them to read, and uh, they they get the fruits of of civilization. They get timepieces because they build an observatory there underneath the moon, and they build radio stations to broadcast a speaking clock. To um, to everybody in the empire, so they all know what time it is, mm-hmm. and that it just changes their uh, changes their society completely, and they all live happily ever after, and it's just the best. Uh, the end. Uh, you know, I, I I you can you you can sort of see some of of Burroughs' uh, politics in in his like describing of the ideal civilization. Like, there's there's no there's no money. He 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 says money is the root of of all evil. His his empire exists on a on a barter system. Um, oh yeah, I've I've forgotten about that. Uh, what that really says to me is that Edgar Rice Burroughs was not familiar with economics. Although I don't know what state economics was in at that point in history, because Kinsey hadn't yet, uh, or uh, not Kinsey, John Maynard Keynes hadn't yet uh, published. Yeah, I. I, I don't know what to what to make of, of his moneyless e- economy, but uh, Burroughs apparently thinks it's it's a great idea. He he thinks money is the root of of all evil. Um, everyone uh, lives in uh, windowless houses, like like there's no there's no glass in the windows um, to spare everyone from what he says the white plague, which I looked up and that's that's tuberculosis. So apparently, if your if your houses don't have ventilation you get tuberculosis or something. I don't know. Oh my. I didn't, I, I didn't quite understand what he was going for there. Yeah. They built, um, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the book now. They built a printing press. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that they built a railroad, but I don't see a reference. Uh, to that he's, right here. he's just beginning to build one as the story ends. I, I, I do like that, that they, they, they eventually go on to build things other than weapons. Cause I mean, the, the the story really does begin to get ho- horrific at a point. Like all they're building is weapons weapons of 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 war, and it it, it sort of seems like Burroughs thinks that's that's the greatest thing that that mankind has to has to offer. Uh, but he he does eventually turn it turn it around, and 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 he has David say to say to Perry, you know, we we can't just give these people weapons. We have to give them the best. That the 20th yeah. century has to offer, and that's that's not weapons. That's that's books and and printing presses and trains and phone lines and things. Yeah, I think that after like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the 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 offhanded way in which uh, it's described how Perry and David build a super bomb and use that to destroy the Mehar city of uh, Futra is yes, yeah, that you're you're you you view that in a different light mm-hmm. than uh, than Burroughs intended, I think. So anyway, so there, there we have it. Um, that's that's the end of uh, Pellucidar. Now I I did do some research, and he he did go on to write a few more uh, Pellucidar stories after this, and he actually eventually joined it up with the Tarzan universe. Uh, there's there there's a book where uh, Tarzan enters Pellucidar and has to rescue David from some other civilization. Um. Which is kind of interesting because Pellucidar, the end of this book, really feels like the conclusion. Uh, it's not a... It doesn't seem like there's a, an obvious uh, room for... It's not like the Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, there's, this, is a, this is a stopping point, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, I, I, I think what, what he does, like, like he did with, with many of his, his other long-running series, like, like Barsoom and, and Tarzan... He he switches to other protagonists, and he just 
he just reveals more of the world, right? Because all, all of Pelusinar has not yet been explored. There's other tribes of cavemen. There, there's other fantastic beasts that, you know, um, for, for, for interesting uh, conflicts and things. Yeah, the, the total size of the geographical area in which both of these books take place can't be much larger than, I, I want to say, like, maybe maybe Texas at the outside, and probably a, a lot smaller than that. And there's the whole rest of the planet uh, in which pretty much anything could exist. Right. So yeah, I I think I think in the in the next book after this, the the protagonist is uh, one of one of the cavemen that that we haven't yet been introduced to. Who, um, yeah, I I I don't want to get too far ahead j- just in case we we read those books. I don't I don't think we will. Well, then then I ask you, what is it that uh, that we as Dungeons and Dragons enthusiasts mm. can take from from Pellucidar, from Pellucidar, this book, and in a larger sense, from Pellucidar, the the series. Uh, I would take from it that guns and dinosaurs absolutely go together. That's you know, it's interesting that you say that because the 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 central conceit of David's uh, utter domination is the idea that all uh, all of the the non firearms using peoples are just they're just completely out of luck when it comes to David and his his guns. Well, that's, guns that's are the ultimate it, trump card, and that's that's, that's kind of something that you see in Dungeons. That's kind of, well, that's kind of something that you see in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, in particular. Um, in Dungeons and Dragons, you have magic. Right, but in Dungeons and Dragons, there's this real reluctance to include firearms as part of the as the of the fantasy milieu on the grounds that that firearms just change everything. Mm-hmm. Um, which, if you, I, I don't particularly believe that um, is necessarily necessarily needs to be the case. If you look at games that do include firearms, it's just you know just another missile weapon option out of many. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that's particularly world-shaking, but definitely on Pellucidar, it's world-shaking. Well, uh, with with guns comes the whole industrial revolution, and, and, and that changes everything, but, I mean, you're... It's it's. Yeah, but, I mean, we're picking guns as the particular flag for the industrial revolution, rather than mass production, rather than movable type. I mean, from um, from a a mechanics standpoint, you can absolutely balance everything. If you if you want to introduce guns to your game, you just introduce other rules that that counterbalance the guns, and you've still got a a, a working game. Yeah, or you just take crossbows and reskin them as guns. Sure. Right. Yeah, it doesn't need. To, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. I think. I think what what people complain about is is what it it does to their imaginary world. Right. Yeah. The idea of the setting. Right. Is one in which guns are going to be a huge game changer, and I think that that is something that you see in Pellucidar that you don't necessarily see in. I don't. I don't know. You would know more about Barsoom than I would, but there are like laser pistols and stuff, mm-hmm. and yet um, I'm pretty sure that swords are something that people use. Oh, that's right? that's another thing that I chalk up to Burroughs' inconsistency. There's there's a lot of lasers in the first book, and in the second and third book, not so much. It's it's not like they went away. He just doesn't talk about them mm-hmm. because he he. I guess he, you know he he thinks sword fights are more. Exciting. Um, they they don't even seem to have. Well, there you know other 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 than than the ship mounted lasers for like like the the the, the ship to ship battles. No one you know like no one seems to have like hand hand lasers, which which they did in the in the in the first book, and they don't seemingly ever 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 again. Just you know, John Carter just you just, you know you, you uses a sword. What would what would you take away from this from this book? Like what like what would what would you take from this book to your to your Dungeons and Dragons game? So the I mean I hate to keep ringing the same bell over and over again, but the thing that really sticks in my mind about Pellucidar is the strangeness of the sense of time mm-hmm. and the idea of a world which is you know the designated adventure world 
where time flows differently mm. than time in the in the mundane world. So but I think that's a concept that that is is pretty rich. I could imagine a D and D game where there's basically two settings, and the player characters are the people who go from the one setting to the other setting, and time flows differently in between these two different planes of reality. Hmm. That's that's really cool. I mean, that's that's a the 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 genre of you know characters from from the mundane world go to the to the fantastic world. I think is a, is a genre that's not really heavily explored in in RPGs. You know, the the the, the sort of Alice in Wonderland. You know, Chronicles of Narnia sort of thing, where you've got ordinary people who wind up in. Yeah, yeah, because you. But well, I mean, it always ends up being like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, and they want to introduce electric fences and uh, rifles. Well, not 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 always. It, it it didn't happen in the two examples I mentioned. It didn't happen. Fair enough. Fair enough. There aren't any electric fences in Narnia. Or or Oz or Alice in Wonderland or you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phantom Toll Booth. What, what yeah. other examples can we can we think of? Oh Lord, um, Nine Princes and Amber is uh, starts off on Earth and then transitions into Amber. Um, then there's oh shoot, what am I thinking of? This was a cartoon movie. Uh, had the voice of John Ritter, Flight of the Dragons. Is that uh-huh. a thing? I Google Flight of the Dragons, I get something called Flight of the Dragons, which may or may not be what I'm thinking of. Um, so I'm going to say yes, Flight of the Dragons. Okay. From, 19, from 1982, animated film. Um, if if any listener knows what Jeff Wickstrom is talking about and, and writes in, you, you get a prize. That's just, like, I think general policy. Anytime anybody knows what I'm talking about. And, and your prize will be paid for by Jeff Wickstrom. Sure. I'll give you a free copy of my book. Or one of them. Whichever. Okay. Okay, so uh, this, I guess, uh, wraps up our, our very, uh, our, our, our discussion of Star was very uh, rambling and erratic and nonsensical, much like the book itself. Uh, and this, this brings our discussion to a close. Uh, this is the last book from Edgar Rice Burroughs that we're going to talk about for a while. Uh, we, we, we will get back to him when we discuss his Venus series, um, which he didn't write until like the 30s, I think. Uh, and in between, we're going to talk about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. We're going to talk about uh, Robert E. Howard. We're going to talk about uh, Anthony Merritt. Abraham Merritt, sorry. Uh, and that's that's all coming up on the Appendix N podcast. So I hope you'll listen, and I hope that some of you will join me. Uh, and Jeff, uh, once again, would you like to repeat where on the internet people can can find you? Uh, well, I have a website. It's uh, Um As we record this, the website is still finishing out um, La Morte d'Arthur. Um, by Sir Thomas Mallory, his his horribly written account of the life and death of King Arthur, uh, which I'm going over bit by bit. I've uh, since last time we talked, I've collected uh, what I've done in uh, into a series of eBooks, which you can get on Amazon. Um, and as soon as uh, as I'm finished with Lamarck Arthur, I'm moving on to the histories by Herodotus. And that will be fun. By all means, just come and visit my website. I'm a very lonely person, and I really appreciate visits. And and thank goodness for public domain. Oh yeah, yeah. Stuff it's, in the public domain is the best. It's 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 a shame that nothing after Mickey Mouse will ever enter the public domain. Oh, don't get me started, man. Uh, okay. Don't get me started. All right, I won't. We'll 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 save that for the next podcast. You bet. All right. And speaking of the next podcast, very shortly, about three weeks after this episode airs, I will be doing an episode on The Moon Pool by Abraham Merritt. Uh, This man is called out by Gygax as being one of the most immediate influences upon AD&D, but I suspect, like many of you, I've never heard of him up until now. 
Uh, he was apparently an influence on H.P. Lovecraft. I'm very excited to get to his writing. Uh, we will be talking about The King of Elfland's Daughter by Lord Dunsany at, at the end of September. Sometime in October, I will be doing an episode on The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. And expect to hear some bonus episodes on Lovecraft's short stories between now and then. Uh, I'm working with a friend of mine who is a Lovecraft expert, so they should be good. I can't wait. And if you have questions or comments for me, if you would like to be a guest on the show or contribute in some fashion, you can contact me through the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 6, Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks for listening.